Okay, so now we get to the main sugya about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the story, the lengthy story about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the famous cave story. Now, we've already set the stage, and the stage is that this is not just some conversation that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Yehuda Bar Yochai and Rabbi Yossi are having, you know, in the Schwitz or some Shabbos afternoon or Ben Gavra Gavra or whatever. It's, it's, it, this is part of a series of stories, a cycle of stories that the Bavli places in a particular context and that context is the discussions amongst these Tanoim, these Rabbanim of this particular generation, the Tanoim that rebuilt Torah that led the recovery of Torah learning in the generation after the fall of Betar and the subsequent persecutions. That's what they're discussing. And the discussion is, what do we think of Rome? That is the topic of the conversation of the day. That is what the people, what Klal Yisrael, the Inerit Yisrael, are considering what they're trying to figure out, how they're trying to, what they're trying to move forward with. And you have three positions. You have this, so the Gemara starts off, why is Rabbi Yehuda Bar Yivlai called the Rosh HaMedabram B'chol Makom? And it says, because of Amaisa Shahaya, the three of them were sitting. It doesn't say that it was in Yavne. But based on the prior Gemara, it sounds like this is part of that same gathering. So I, I take the creative license to say that this conversation also in the Bavli's imagination, in the Bavli's telling, happens at Yavne. And the discussion is, what do we think of Rome? Now, everybody that talks about this Gemara, not everybody, although it is one of the most commented on Gemaras in what I would call the late, late 20th century. There are at least six, seven academic articles um, and even other ar academic articles and rabbinic articles that talk about this Gemara. Their main takeaway, almost everybody focuses on the cave. Almost everybody focuses on the fact that Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai was, was wrong. I think go back to a drasha by Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, where he talks about um, turning away from the world. He calls it uh, caves and enclaves. So we don't want caves, we want enclaves. This was later misrepresented, you know, that to say that he called people who take a Torah-only approach cavemen, which is not what he said. But there are several other academic treatments of it as well. One that looks at it within a Christian context, one in a Zoroastrian context, one comparing Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's cave to Plato's cave, one that, um, you know, that is an analysis of the Bavli just straight up, um, you know, on its own terms. But they all come to the same conclusion. 
the conclusion that they all come to is that Rashbi and his cave, they're seen as being, uh, that the Rashbi's cave is seen as, this is a critique of Rashbi's Torah-only approach. We already saw that Rashbi says in the previous Gemara that Rashbi connects Bittal Torah to Askara, to death by Askara. Bittal Torah is some sort of, is is the sin that incurs the worst punishment. And this is also correlated to a famous Gemara that we have from Masechus Brachos about where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, no, drop everything and and learn Torah, whereas Rabbi Yishmael says that, no, you're supposed to do, you know, v'yasavta digonecha, you're supposed to, you're supposed to work in addition to learning. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, yeah, you're going to plant when the time of planting and you're going to reap in the time of reaping, etc. And what's going to be with the Torah? So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is this, is emblematic of the Torah-only approach. And that's true. That extreme Torah-only approach is associated with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and that's what people pick up on. And I think that there's a, a lot of this, you know, historians in 200 years and 300 years are going to look back and see that there are, you know, five, six academic treatments of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and the cave that all pop up in the same few decades, you know, within, I don't know, 50 years of each other, maybe less, maybe 30 years of each other, and they're going to look back and say, like, why is this so, why did this, like, pop up then? And they're going to say, like, oh, because that was when you had the real explosion of a Torah-only society in the land of Israel, and this was a way of critiquing them. And, and there's no question that there is that element of critique, right? That they are critiquing contemporary kolel society. Yeah, these academic, uh, these, some of these academic treatments, not most of them, in fact, have that in the background. I would like to take a different approach. I don't want to ignore that, um, that opinion of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but I think that there are some more fundamental positions of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that are foregrounded here, or at least if they're not more, if they're not more prominent in this context, they're at least as prominent. And that begins even with the first conversation. The first conversation between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi, Rabbi Yossi is silent. He's not really a participant in the conversation. But as Rav Cook points out in Enaya, um, silence is also very telling. Silence is not a non-response. Silence is itself a response. And silence, if you think about it, is probably the most typical response of any of any in you know the long period of of exile. Right? What, what do you do? Do we want to say the people that rule us are good? Do we want to say the people around us, the people that are ruling over us are bad? Or do we want to just keep our mouths shut? And we're like, yeah, <laughs> that sounds like a good option. So we just keep our mouths shut. And the punishment that Rabbi Yossi has is that he's sent into Gullus, right? Which is, as Ruf Cook points out, the punishment fits the crime. If the crime is you want to be silent, then you are going to have to be 
you're going to have to be decentralized. You're going to have to be moved to the margins of society. And we're going to come back to Rebiosi. But starting with Rev, you know, the two speakers in this context are Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon. And if you think about Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon here, they're not disagreeing about anything. It's not a machlokas mitzias, what we would say in yeshivas. They're not, they don't disagree about what the facts are. Rabbi Yehuda says that the Romans built bridges, the Romans built roads, the Romans built baths. And Rabbi Shimon says, Inachinami, but look at why they did that. They did that for ulterior motives. They didn't do that because they want to be doing good for you. They did. They built the baths so that they can, uh, that they can pamper themselves. And they built the roads so that they can collect tolls. And they built the markets so that they can... They built markets only so that they can, they can put whores there. That's, where, that's Rabbi Shimon's position. Does Rabbi Yehuda disagree? Does Rabbi Shimon... Is there a Muslim? He's saying, you know, it's not like, you know, a lot of people that talk about this. So, yeah, this story, they like to show that clip from Monty Python where the, you know, this uh, rebel against Rome is like, what have the Romans ever done for us? And so it's like, well, they've built the roads. Oh, that's true. They built the roads. And sewage. Yeah, yeah, that's true. They did. Right. Which is a very funny clip. And the life of Brian, I can't recommend it. It's not appropriate. But there are some really funny clips there. Um, So that's not what's going on. You know, the guy, Reg, in the Monty Python clip, he's denying what Rome did. And he's begrudgingly admitted, you know, Rome has also done some good things. Rabbi Shemar isn't denying what Rome did. He's agreeing that Rome did these things. He's just saying, you don't look at what they did, you look at what their intention was. Interestingly enough, that is a machlokas between Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon all over Shas. It's a Shas sugya, and that is the sugya of Kavana. Dover she'eno miskave. I did something without meaning to do it, without intending to do it. On Shabbos, Dover she'eno miskave, I did something and I, it accidentally caused the malacha to be done. Were you over? Or were you not over? Did you violate that trans? Did you transgress? Or did you not? Now, Rabbi Yehuda says, we don't look at intention. Dabr she'enu miskavein is chayav. Rabbi Shimon says, sorry, it, um, and, and, and Rabbi Shimon says, Dabr she'enu miskavein is mutter or pater, depending on the context. Rabbi Yehuda is machmir on Dabr she'enu miskavein. And Rabbi Shimon is Mekel on Dabr She'enu Miskave. Which means, for Rabbi Shimon, the intention is far more important. If you did something, it doesn't mean that you did it until you meant to do it. So you look at the Romans. The Romans did something. The Romans did all these things. But we don't look at what the Romans did. We look at what the Romans meant. We look at what the Romans intended. And there they didn't do it for any good or proper reason. Another machlokas that also comes up in many places over Shas. 
Darshinan Tayama Dekra. Do what do we do with the reasons behind the mitzvahs? How do we understand reasons behind the mitzvahs? When the Torah says something, when the Torah tells us to do something or not to do something, and we think we know why. The, the reason why the Torah wants us to do something is fairly evident. Does that mean that you can be Doresh time at the cross? That if the reason doesn't apply in a particular circumstance, then the mitzvah doesn't apply in that circumstance. According to Rabbi Shimon, that is a legitimate way of reading the Torah, of deriving halacha from the Torah. According to Rabbi Yehuda, it is not. What that means is that Rabbi Shimon gives greater value to the implied but unstated esoteric meaning of the Pasuk, whereas Rabbi Yehuda, what you see is what you get. If the Torah says, don't do this, and you think you know the reason, why the Torah says that, and there's a context where the reason doesn't apply, you might think, yeah, that you could do it in that case, but Rabbi Yehuda is saying, no, you cannot, because we only have what the Torah says. We only go by what the Torah actually says, and we don't concern ourselves with what the Torah may have meant. So in, these, in both of these machlokos, you have Rabbi Yehuda, whose interest is in the plain meaning, the surface meaning, the, the action, the facts on the ground. And you have Rabbi Shimon, who's taking a, a position of, no, the main thing is not what, what, you, what it says, and is not what was done, but the main thing is what you meant when you said that, or when you did that. Intention, even though it's not visible, even though it's not there in front of you, is the primary is is the primary indicator of whether what you did is right or wrong. Now, this is the first element of you know, we know that Rabbi Shimon is more associated, is associated today with having written the Zohar, with mysticism, with esotericism. And I think that that's, you know, I, I do subscribe to the view that even if these things, you know, th this image of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai did evolve over time, but there's a reason that this happened with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and it didn't happen with other Tanoim. The Rabbi Shimon, the way that Rabbi Shimon's personality is described in the, in the Bavli sort of gives rise to this image of somebody who is much more internally focused, much more, much more interested in not the words, but the meaning behind the words. Not the actions, but the intentions behind the actions. And I think that that is what predisposes us to develop a mythology around him, a legendary around him, that sees him as this master of the the inner meaning of things.
which is what esotericism is. There's exotericism, which is concerned with what's on the outside, and then there's esotericism, which is concerned with what's on the inside, what you would call the panemius, the inner meaning, the inner, the innerness, the inwardness. So we go back to that first machlokas. And that first machlokas between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon, it's not a machlokas of Bitsias. They're not disagreeing about what the Romans have done. They're disagreeing about, ultimately, what are the, what have the Romans, what are the Romans, how do we judge them? Do we judge them favorably or do we not judge them favorably? Are they good or are they evil? Do we focus on the good actions or do we focus on the bad intentions? Now it happens to be that a very similar conversation appears elsewhere in Shas. And the Maharsha already points this out. And I will note that the academic articles that point this out don't quote the Maharsha, though the Maharsha does point this out. And that is the Gemara at the beginning of Avodah Zarah. It says that it goes through a series of different... It goes through a series of... Um, nations that in the end of days come before God and say, you know, judge us favorably. And God says, what did you do? What did you do? And they try to say, oh, we did this and this and this. And God says, yes, but their reasoning, the purpose was this, this, and this, and they're condemned. And Rome comes before God. And God says, what have you done? What did you do? And Rome says the same things. Oh, we built baths, we built bridges, we built um, we did all these good things. And God says, yes, but you only did this for ulterior motives. You only did that for ulterior motives. You didn't do anything for the right reason. And condemns them. So, if we correlate those two conversations, Rabbi Yehuda is taking the position of Rome itself, and Rabbi Shimon is taking the position of God. So, how can we say that Rabbi Yehuda was right? I mean, Shimon is literally speaking... You know, it's, Rabbi Shimon's position is God's position. God's, Kodesh Baruch himself. That's the position that Rabbi Shimon Baruch takes. So the Marsha says something, he alludes to something, this is an expansion of the Marsha. We're not talking about the Olam HaEmes. Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Huda were not talking about the Olam HaEmes. And this relates very much to what we've already been developing about these, about these stories and about this sugya. In the Olam HaMS, it could be true that Rome is worthy of condemnation and that all the good things they did are worthless in the ultimate, in the ulti, in the day, on the day of the ultimate judgment. However, we're not at the day of ultimate judgment. We're at a time, we live in a time where Rome is the overlord and we've got to figure out a way to live with them and live under them. So how do we do that? And Rabbi Yehuda is basically saying, we have to look at those positives. We have to look at the, the good things that Rome did, the positive things that Rome did. We can't take an attitude of everything they do is terrible. Because it's not a, it's, it's not a question of truth. It's a question of what we call politics. Rabbi Yehuda is taking a political position. And he's saying, this is the attitude that we have to have toward Rome. And Rabbi Shimon is saying, how can you deny the truth? 
how can you look at these people and say that like, oh yeah, they're, what they're doing is nice and good and whatever. It, it's, it's not feasible. It can't be. And that is what their machlokas is about. The machlokas to sub. The machlokas is about whether you look at Rome's actions or Rome's intentions, and that relates it to a broader machlokas between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon about intention, intention behind the action or the speech versus the action or the speech itself. And it's also related to that discussion in Masechah Zavodah Zara, where you have a similar conversation at the end of days, right? But this conversation is not taking place at the end of days. This conversation is about the here and now, Rabbi Huda and Rabbi Shimon discussing how do we relate to Rome? What's our attitude going to be to Rome? And they're not even talking about, they're not, they're, they're not talking about ultimate judgment. Of course, Rabbi Shimon is unwilling to concede, to make that concession to reality. He's unwilling to acknowledge the world as it is. He's unwilling to acknowledge the political reality. He, he's, we'll put it this way, he's unwilling to surrender to Rome. He's unwilling to say that this, this he's unwilling to make any sort of concession to the fact that Rome is evil. That they're your overlords, you have to live under them. It doesn't matter. I have to hold it on to the truth. And the truth is, these are people who are motivated by evil. Their, their entire being, their entire presence here is evil. And I will, not, I will not hold back from speaking the truth just because it would be more comfortable to live under them if I would keep my mouth shut like Rabbi Yossi or sing their praises like Rabbi Yehuda.